I think societies have run the danger of losing track of this organic human experience of life ever since the clock was invented. One part of the anxiety of travel is suddenly you're living in an organic time and you're not used to it. You know, it's like, well, by the rules of mechanized time, I should have had 10 things done by it today, and I'm still drinking this cafe, and I kind of love it, but I'm suddenly anxious that I'm not doing enough. Well, welcome to organic time. This is a great way to experience life. Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's vagabonding audio companion episode is remixed from Aaron Miller's Armchair Explorer podcast, which uses music and cinematic editing to tell people's travel stories. In my case, Aaron uses interview snippets to recount the story of my entire travel career, from my first vagabonding dreams to my most recent travel experiences. Listening to this episode was fun for me because it allowed me to consider my travel career as a complete arc rather than being trapped in the concerns of the present moment. We all instinctively know the stories of our travel ambitions and philosophies, but it's rare to have them remixed and told back to us in detail, so it was a real treat for me to hear this. In the course of this episode, I talk about what I learned from traveling by van for eight months at age 23. I talk about boating down the Mekong River or bicycling across Burma when I was young or coming to terms with boredom in Sumatra's Mentawai Islands as an older traveler. I talk about the spiritual resonance of travel, the ways it can make you feel more alive and the ways it can inform the life you live at home. Aaron provides occasional narration of his own as he curates my own travel stories and philosophies. Let's listen in. I grew up in the middle of the United States. I didn't know that many people with passports. I thought maybe long-term travel was something that you had permission to do toward the end of your life when you retired from a successful career and you'd saved enough money. But I think life doesn't always reward one with free time after a life well-lived. I mean, my grandfather was a Kansas farmer. He had worked harder than anybody I knew. He dropped out of school as an eighth grader to start farming because his father had died. And if anybody had earned his retirement, it was my grandfather. But his wife, my grandmother, got Alzheimer's disease as they were getting older, and he had to stay home and take care of her. Not that he dreamed to travel, but he wasn't able to enjoy the slower pace of retirement in a way that we are led to believe we can do in the United States. So when I was quite young, I realized that with an almost sense of desperation that I needed to make travel happen now, that it, uh, my dream trip, my journeys couldn't happen at the end of my career, you know, decades into the future, I had to find a way to make it now. And because I wasn't surrounded by that many people who had passports or had traveled internationally or had even done much long-term travel at home, I just sort of decided to make this own trip happen. And I was in college at the time. <clears throat> and so I was working at a supermarket in Wichita, Kansas, my hometown. I would stock shelves all night. But as I was stocking shelves, I would dream of this trip I wanted to take around America. I decided I wanted to live in a van and travel around America. But as I was stocking shelves, it was as if the journey had already begun. This this job that otherwise was not very glamorous and kind of hard and boring suddenly was infused with this new energy because I was already mentally on this journey that I knew nothing about yet, but I knew it was going to be good. Somehow, the fact that I was funding something special, the fact that I had given myself permission, and my first book, Vagabonding, is a lot about giving yourself permission to travel. It was as if the journey had already begun. 
Working hard and stocking shelves, Rolf saved enough money that summer to depart on his trip immediately after he graduated from college. He set out from Kansas in a beat-up van with nothing more than some modest belongings and a map. Now, I'll admit, early on in the journey, in these cold, drizzly Oregon days when the journey was first starting out, I felt anxiety. I felt like, what the hell am I doing? What on earth? Why did I ever think this was a good idea? And I think this happens with almost any trip, that, that there's a mixture of excitement and gratitude with anxiety and uncertainty at the beginning of the trip, because in a certain sense, travel it jars you out of the routines that define your life. And without those routines to protect you, suddenly you are living in a much more raw way. And it can be rewarding, but you have to get used to it. But it ended up being eight months. I lived in a van the whole time. I went to New York City for the first time. All these amazing cities. I sat in on the Donahue talk show. I stayed in a monastery in Massachusetts. It was amazing to see the monastic life. And I climbed all these mountains and I hiked in all these parks. But really, even though it's nice to have gotten a nice bullet list of things that I had done, my most grateful moments, and one I identify in The Vagabond's Way, I talk about sitting in a tent in the Uintah Mountains of Utah. And I couldn't really tell you what exactly I did. I think I read some books and went hiking. But I just embraced that gratitude. I just sat in the sun and breathed in and thought, this is my life. You know, if I was back home, I might be watching TV. I might have wasted this day. Instead, I get to look out on these beautiful mountains, the name of whom I didn't know at all until I saw it on my map. Again, this is before internet was ubiquitous. And I was able to just sit still and feel my aliveness and be grateful for all the things I had experienced in previous months. When I started the journey, I had a lot of things planned. I knew that I wanted to go to Mardi Gras in New Orleans, for example. I knew I wanted to be in Florida during spring break season. I was a young guy. I sort of prioritized partying. And those were nice. And I think for all of the plans that I had baked into the trip, that was a nice experience for structure. But at the end of the day, I realized that I liked being still. I liked not just having experiences, but savoring them. And by the end of the trip, when I was staying with family, friends, or friends of friends, they'd often say, you're sort of a bad traveler. You're not doing very much. And it's like, actually, I don't know if I can do that many more things. I want to savor the last thing I did. I want to enjoy the fact that it is February and I'm in Texas, or I want to enjoy the fact that it is June and I'm in upstate New York. And just instead of moving through a place, let a place move through me a little bit. One great thing I found in Key West, Florida, was the fact that people clap at the sunset at the end of every day at Duval Square in Key West. And apparently it's just something that they always do there. It's almost a tourist cliche, but that amazed me so much that you could clap during a sunset. Why not, if not physically, internally clap every time you were grateful? I have had much more far-flung adventures. I've had much subtler and more spiritual adventures, but this trip was so effused with joy and gratitude. And I learned some lessons that it wasn't as dangerous as people said it was. It wasn't as expensive as people said it was. And it wasn't as difficult as people said it was. A small seed had been planted in Rolf's mind. With each new day on the road, it grew and grew. At 21, with very little money in the bank, Rolf had managed to travel for eight months around the country, a feat that, on its surface, seemed out of reach for people with far more resources than him. This realization inspired his first book, Vagabonding, which encouraged his readers to understand that long-term travel was possible, it was safe, and it was affordable. It didn't have to be glamorous. 
It just meant being brave enough to let go of conventions. And one of the biggest conventions of travel is planning. Most people, especially now when every piece of information you could ever hope to know is literally at the palm of your hands, spend far longer planning their trip than they do on the trip itself. I get it. You want the perfect adventure, that dream trip. But the more he traveled around the world for weeks and months at a time, the more Rolf began to question this approach. I think there's a real expectations versus reality matrix going on here. And this can apply to adventure travel because there's self-described adventure travelers who are having a great time, but often they will plan the adventure in advance. They're sitting at home and they already have their guides organized through the internet. They know what route they'll go. And the physical joy of that journey is exciting, but really nothing is left to chance. You are physically climbing a mountain or rafting a river or hiking through a forest, but because the expectations are baked into the trip because in a certain sense, expectations turn us into a consumer of travel. You know, once you've bought that great hiking trek through Bhutan, then you sort of put yourself in a position to be disappointed. Oh, the guides didn't cook as much food as I thought they would. And I don't want to knock planned adventure travel because I've done it and I think there's a lot of great experiences to be had. But I think adventure itself is when you leave yourself open to unexpected things. When maybe you show up in Nepal or Kenya without a certain sense of what guides you're going to have or even what mountain you're going to climb and just talk to people and have different experiences and talk to travelers who are leaving the country as you're coming in. And that adventure mindset is something that can touch everything, regardless of whether you're hiking a remote mountain or you're just walking through a market in a village you've never seen before and you didn't know about before you started the adventure. So I think oftentimes if we get too attached to our expectations of a place, we won't allow ourselves to be surprised by the realities, the serendipities that happen when we're in that place. And so I think regardless of how you define adventure, if it involves mountains and white water rafting, or just taking a bus to a town that you didn't know before you saw it on the reader board, I think having a willingness to embrace the unexpected is really part of what makes an adventure an adventure. If you have time to just go in and see what happens. You know, the idea of let's go see. What is it like in Uganda? Well, let's go see. Let's not have too many expectations. Let's go see. Let's talk to people who live there. Let's talk to other people who are traveling there and not limit what we think is possible until we have set eyes on that place and we can follow our heart instead of our itinerary. So in the spirit of being open-minded and easygoing, always continuing to channel the ethos of that first road trip, Rolf visited a country with plenty of options for spontaneity and adventure. It's a country I've always wanted to see. It's Indonesia. Indonesia, it's sort of a misleading word because it's this island nation. I think if you count all the islets, there's like 17,000 islands and islets in Indonesia. And you can say Indonesia, but Sulawesi is different than, than Sumatra, which is different from Flores, which is different from Java or Bali. When I made it to Lake Toba, which is a legendary part of the Banana Pancake Trail, there were very few non-Indonesians there. I was paying $12 for this hut on this great volcanic caldera lake. I could jump into the lake from the rail of my balcony. My toilet didn't work very well, but I didn't care, you know. At the end of the day, I would rather stay at, I'd rather spend $12 in this beautiful place that feels like it's paradise than spend $200 for a super air-conditioned place where I can walk down and, and get a bowl of curry from the kitchen. 
And I realized that travel is hard in Sumatra. The roads are not as good in Bali. There's not as many people posting on Instagram from Sumatra. But it's a place where if you're willing to put up with a pretty crappy 18-hour share taxi ride, you can end up in a part of the island where for $18, you get a beach hut, three meals a day. You can stumble out of your beach hut every day, swim in a reef full of butterfly fish. You can eat fresh fruit and rice and feel like you're living in some reality show of paradise. You know, I just couldn't believe how awesome it was for almost no money to be living in this place. And one amazing part of it is that it was in a part of Sumatra where dynamite fishing and palm oil plantations are sometimes messing up the environment and making a very extractive economy. They were importing tourists and not just any tourists. It was a bunch of dirtbags spending $18 a day. They were basically protecting this very pristine part of the Sumatran coast from dynamite fisher and palm oil fishermen because it was so beautiful, because it felt so great. So we often talk in terms of bucket lists or over-touristed places. But I think you don't have to get that far off the tourist trail to find an amazing place that is not just affordable, but is amazing and where 97% of the dollars you spend in that place is going to feed into the economy of that place and make it more sustainable for the people that come after you. So again, I'm not going to knock bucket lists and amazing times are being had in Bali, but why not try Sulawesi? Why not go to Flores? Why not go to Lombok or East Java? For $8.50 a night, I was on a little hut on stilts above a lotus pond. I could hear a waterfall cascading down a, a cliff away from me. I arrived there on motorcycle because there aren't buses that go there necessarily. And for $8.50 a night, I had the blessing of being in this place that felt like you know, a movie set of paradise or something. But the great thing is that it wasn't a movie set. There's no front stage or backstage. It just was what it was. And the price for getting there was one, being willing to go to a place that I didn't necessarily know a lot about. And two, being willing to be uncomfortable on my way there. As you continue throughout Sumatra, Rolf focused on stepping away from planning and expectations. He was determined to let this place present itself to him and show him what it had to offer complete with bumpy roads, subpar toilets, stunning, lush waterfalls, lotus ponds, and everything in between. In many ways, he succeeded in letting the country reveal its own treasures. And in doing so, Indonesia taught him lessons he didn't even know he had to learn. I have a chapter in the new book about how I crowdsourced a restaurant recommendation in Bukitingi, Sumatra where I wanted to eat rendang, which is sort of a coconut curry dish that's often eaten with beef or chicken. It's from the Manikabao people who are indigenous to that area. And so I went to TripAdvisor and I found a restaurant where it was served and I went there and it was fine, but it was sort of empty. And in retrospect, I realized it was catering to the tourist bus trade that everybody who had reviewed it on TripAdvisor were people who'd been passing through Bukitingi in an afternoon and they liked their rendang that they ate there, but they weren't local to Bukitingi. I realized that I had walked through a crowded market full of Bukutingi natives eating delicious food on the way to my crowdsource recommendation. And since then, I was humbled. It's like, just look for a crowd. You don't need to crowdsource something from an app or a website when you can just walk out with your nose that works, with your eyes that work, and think, where are people who live here eating? And not only is that going to get you an experience that is less expensive than the tourist bus Rendang restaurant, but you're also gonna be sitting there shoulder to shoulder with people who live in the city and following crowds instead of crowdsourcing taught me the lesson that 
There are way more experiences to be had in a single neighborhood of a single city than anything that you can read about online or can dream about before you show up and start following your nose and following crowds. Sumatra is the sixth largest island in the world, larger than the entire state of California and then some. In the course of several weeks backpacking there in this one island, it changed him in ways he could never have anticipated. He learned to tear up the guidebook. He had learned to follow his instincts. He learned that true adventure is found in the unknown and unexpected, that it's built on faith and an open mind. But unsurprisingly, in a place so vast, Indonesia had one more lesson in store for him. I went to the Mentawai Islands, which is an archipelago about two hours west of Sumatra. It has indigenous people who are living not Stone Age lives, but lives that are far closer to the Stone Age than they are on the coasts. The reason that they are living such primitive lives there is that there aren't roads that go through the Mentawai archipelago. There are a few, but they're usually on the coast. You have to walk through calf-deep mud in the jungle for hours, if not days, to find these communities. And there's a certain subset of travelers with whom this is popular because they have their own tattooing ritual there. Basically, it's a a piece of palm wood with a nail through it, and they dip it in coal and burnt sugar, and they hammer tattoos into you. It's a pretty hardcore way of, of getting your tattoos. But what is normal in this part of Sumatra is just different from what is normal in another part of the world. So in a certain sense, we go to these parts of the world to experience otherness. The entertainment in these villages is when people come from another village or another hut, and they sit around the oil lamp and they talk. And I had learned the Mentawai word for pig, and I realized that they had a 30-minute conversation tangent that was just about pigs, because that's what was interesting in the village. The pigs lived under the huts. And so I realized that time was just slower and more expansive. Time was not chopped into these little television schedule bits or into these social media squares that we experienced time back home. But they were hanging out. They were talking about pigs. They were eating mealworms and squirrel that they'd hunted that day. And I realized that these were people who were not afraid to get bored. They were just occupying time and they were living their lives in such a way that they weren't judging each moment. Oh, is this interesting? Am I being productive? They were just enjoying their time with each other. And at first I was thinking, nothing is really happening. I'm just sitting here. I should be doing something. I should be going on a hike. There's a little watering hole in the village, deep, deep in the Mentawai Islands, where I would just sit there and float around. And once I realized that I didn't have to be bored, that I could just pay attention to where I was. And in a sense, I say in Vagabond's way that boredom forces you into a new kind of attention. I realized that I wasn't even paying attention to the jungle I'd been in for days, that there were macaques in the trees. There were birds I'd never seen before. There were butterflies that were of a color that I didn't know existed before. It's sort of this silvery purple blue winged butterfly that had been all around me. And when I was worried about being bored, I wasn't watching them. But when I just breathed in and paid attention to where I was, suddenly I realized that boredom is a gift. Boredom is something that says, let's not worry about the abstraction of modern life. Let's just pay attention to where we are and join in in this conversation about pigs or look at these butterflies that are completely new or sit still for long enough so that the macaques, these little monkeys that you've never seen before, are bold enough to walk out on a branch and make themselves seen. And so I say in the new book, dare to be lonely, lost, and bored. Because as travelers, we're often encouraged not to be that. Being lonely is a sense that, oh, we should 
you know, we have failed at being social. Well, no, loneliness makes us feel our our social valence in this situation. It makes us more bolder. I, as an introvert, have never been so bold as when I've been lonely on my journeys. It's okay to be lost. We don't need our GPS to always tell us where we are. Sometimes being lost is the best way to A, figure out where you are and be found again, or B, find an experience that you didn't know existed until you wandered into a new street and saw it with your eyes. And then, like I said, being bored in that mental white jungle allowed me to see it. Suddenly, had I gone with a Birds of the Mental White book and I was always looking for birds, it wouldn't have been as joyful when I saw that hornbill in the trees as when I powered through boredom and I was just willing to be alone and to pay attention that experience. And the Mentawai Islands are still one of my fondest experiences because I was experiencing life in a way that wasn't chopped up by mechanical time. I was just walking through deep mud in the jungle, being still and working through boredom to be more fully present in this place that was so amazing. Boredom is important. In the West, it's something we're terrified of. We're wasting our lives. We're achieving nothing. But true creativity, the absolute best ideas you'll ever have, doesn't come from doing. It comes from listening. It comes from stillness, from allowing the mind to quiet and sink into the present moment. And it's in that present moment when those subtle wonders of life, the birds in the forest, the company of friends listening to macaques stir butterflies from the leaves, they truly come alive. Time has become a commodity, something to be compartmentalized and planned and spent like money. That isn't real. And the more Rolf traveled, the more he allowed himself to swim in time, not sprint through it. He began to see time as it truly is, beyond the veil of our modern minds. I think societies have run the danger of losing track of this organic human experience of life ever since the clock was invented. The world of commerce has decided, oh, wait a second, we can make more money. We can be more efficient if we break our day into these things called hours and minutes. And um, instead of just using the, the sunrise and sunset and the rhythms of our day, we can actually be much more efficient in a global way. I think as humans, we've been inside this world of mechanized time for so long that we've forgotten that organic time exists outside of that umbrella. I think that this abstraction of mechanized time is something that we can filter through our lives without really even thinking about it. And I'm not saying this is just something that happens in travel. Literally, this is how we live our lives at home. We're rushing. We have alarm clocks that tell us by the rules of mechanized time when to wake up. We have work lives that is set by schedules and we have meetings and we have Zoom meetings and tasks need to be done by certain times. And so I think what travel can do, it's pretty rare actually, travel allows you to just let go of mechanized time and enjoy organic time for a while. Nobody knows you in this place. You, you can just sort of walk until your day becomes interesting. You can wait and see what happens. You can be a fool a little bit and learn a few new lessons in this new place without really superimposing this idea of itineraries and mechanized time and abstractions into your travel experience. And again, it's easier said than done. I think one part of the anxiety of travel is suddenly you're living in organic time and you're not used to it. You know, it's like, well, by the rules of mechanized time, I should have had 10 things done by it today. And I'm still drinking this cafe and I'm, I kind of love it sitting in this cafe in this beautiful city, but I'm suddenly anxious that I'm not doing enough. Well, welcome to organic time. This is a great way to experience life. The idea that 
We could do better. We could optimize this day. Could we? Do we need to optimize this day? Why can't we just enjoy this day? Why can't we just enjoy the time that life has given us and just breathe in and enjoy it without worrying about what else we could be doing? Well, I bought a bike when I went to Myanmar because it was sort of a, it was a limitation. Biking forced me to go slow. It forced me to go with the power of my own legs. And I illustrate this in The Vagabond's Way that really your mode of transport will affect how you see a place and how you are seen in a place. I, my example was the great 1930s traveler, Bessie Stringfield. And at a time when black Americans couldn't necessarily ride every train across America, Bessie Stringfield traveled America on a Harley Davidson. And so at a time where she didn't really have permission, sadly, to ride certain conveyances, she just went her own way. She was a very tough, extraordinary woman. And she would toss a penny in the air and where it landed on the map is where she would go. This was 10 years before Jack Kerouac and On the Road that she was making her own way. Actually, I just learned of her story quite recently, but early in my travel career, I realized that the most efficient way between this city and this city in a place like Burma isn't necessarily the best way to experience it. So I went bicycle shopping. I decided that, you know, Burma isn't too mountainous. So I was going to ride a one-speed bicycle. I'm pretty tall. And so in Myanmar, I had to shop in the town of Mandalay until I found their biggest bike. It was still a little bit small. It had one speed and it kept me super slow, but actually going slowly through Myanmar allowed me to see things that I had not noticed from the window of the bus or the train or even the riverboat. And it's the place where I've gotten the cheapest mangoes I've ever gotten. I got like seven mangoes, delicious mangoes, just like you break open the skin and juice practically flies out for about a nickel. I bought the cheapest pitcher of beer I've had anywhere in the world, which is 40 US cents for a giant pitcher of Myanmar lager. It was fantastic. I loved it. Another great thing is that technically it was rainy season. A lot of people in Thailand, which is adjacent to Burma, said, oh, don't go there during the rainy season. It'll ruin your trip. Well, I got rained on a few times on my bicycle, but I sort of had these places to myself. You know, at a time when I would go to a big tourist site like Bagan in central Myanmar with all the beautiful, sprawling Buddha stupas across the plain, I was sort of the only guy there, and people had more time for me. And monks invited me into their monasteries. I slept in a few monasteries on that bike trip. Bagan is amazing. Bagan is one of those places that automatically rewards its bucket list status. It was sort of rainy and drizzly when I was there, but the sun was breaking out through the clouds and shining light on these various gold stupas that were just spread out across the valley. There's so many of these stupas, and it's this feeling of otherness. There really is no other place like it where you're in this valley and there's these giant stupas, some of which are gold leaf, some of which are falling apart. And you realize that this was a special place to the people who built this thousands of years ago. And you are communing with that presence. And you just realize that you're never gonna fully understand what this place is and what its significance is, but you get to experience it for a while. And so it was really just a matter of riding from stupa to stupa across this big plain. And I spent the whole time just riding another stupa, climbing to the top, taking some pictures, talking to some people, Actually, I had some interesting tourist souvenir experiences because I didn't really want a souvenir, but the souvenir vendors didn't have much business during the rainy season. And so they're like, oh, here's a marionette head. And it's like, I don't want a marionette head. And it's like, well, give us an offer. And I just lowballed them. It's like, oh, well, here's $3 and they're sold. So I have all, weirdly, I have all of these souvenirs from that experience too. 
And sometimes souvenirs can be seen as this kitschy fallen object. Souvenirs are not as significant as the place they were, but I'm fond of them. And I can turn around and look at those marionette heads now. I have one hanging on this wall. Actually, they're both hanging on this wall. You can see them in the Zoom. And so in a way, they are abstractions on my wall, but they remind me of that day on the plain of Bagan and just having nothing to do but climb these amazing structures, which I didn't really know much about. And then ending it with a bunch of Burmese people who I hadn't known that morning, but were glad to share a pitcher of 40 cent beer with me. Basically, by breaking the rules, and actually anybody can do this because there are no rules for travels, they're just protocols that we end up going through places that are in the guidebook. And I'm not going to knock that, but simply by just going my own way with a paper map and a one-speed bicycle, suddenly I was jarring Burmese people. It's like, we don't usually see a dude going three miles an hour, you know, with his cruddy backpack and taking such an interest in us that in a way I sort of had faith in the slowness of that journey. And I was rewarded with the generosity and exuberance and interest and good humor of the Burmese people I met along the way. So to this day, I, you know, I went on foot across Israel for a while. I always try to find ways to force myself to slow down. And sometimes it's finding the slowest bicycle you have. Sometimes it's walking. Sometimes it's maybe just sitting still in the town square instead of rushing off to a place. But I often think back to this. And one thing I talk about in one chapter of of the uh, Vagabond's Way is I was just being on a riverboat someplace. I wasn't really sure where I was. If I went back to Burma, I don't know if I would be able to find it. But in the dark, with the stars in the sky and the moon glowing on the Irrawaddy River, I just, again, gratitude. I just felt so alive. I didn't know where I was, but I knew that I was paying attention. I knew that this moment was mine, and all it took was a $40 bicycle and going super slow in Myanmar. He had many other travels. He lived the Vagabond's Way, including one of my favorites, trekking hundreds of miles across the entire length of Israel while wearing a full-on cowboy hat. He even learned to windsurf on the Sea of Galilee, which is pretty cool. And that inspired him to push the boundaries of how travel could be done, not just on foot or a $40 bike. Now, he had something slower and altogether more vagabondy in mind. When I first went to Southeast Asia, I was really amazed by the fact that I was in Southeast Asia. It felt so other. The air smelled different. But after a few days of being in Bangkok, I sort of had a burnout on going to all these fantastic wats, all these wonderful stupas and and Buddhist temples. And this is not unique to Southeast Asia. You find people who will show up in Europe and they're so excited to be in Europe and see all of these cathedrals. But people talk about cathedral fatigue in Europe. Well, I pretty quickly experienced Buddhist temple fatigue in Thailand. That basically I was going to these amazing places, but after a few days, I'd sort of forgot which place was which that I'd taken pictures of. And I think I had tried to do too much in too little time. So I traveled up to Isan, which is the northeastern part of Thailand, sort of the place where fewer people go to. And I really became intrigued by the idea of the Mekong River, which in the United States, we usually think of it in the terms of the Mekong Delta because it figured in a lot of Vietnam War stories. But the Mekong starts in China and it is the 12th longest river in the world, but it has the second highest volume of water. And so I went from Thailand into Laos and I was in Laos for a while. I met some other American travelers who had experience with riverboats. One of them was an Alaska fisherman. And so in Luang Prabang, we went together and we bought just sort of a local Lao fishing boat and we started driving it down the river. And now I knew nothing about riverboats, but 
The American fishermen taught me how to do it, and so I was fairly proficient in driving a Southeast Asian riverboat down the river. And just by willing, again, the different conveyances, it's one thing to ride a bike across Myanmar as opposed to taking a tour bus. It's one thing to take a local fishing boat down the Mekong River as opposed to taking a commercial boat or a bus. It really slowed us down. It sort of baked some fear into the experience. We would sleep on the banks of the river. Sometimes there were some Laotian militiamen would wake us up with their AK-47s in the middle of the night. And I think they were more scared than we were. It's like, why the heck are these Americans sleeping on a sandbar in, in our little village? And again, each day was new and exciting. And we had bought these maps in Laos, which showed the river, but only on the Lao side of the river. It was just a blank white space on the Thai side of the river. And we had our Lao visa and every day was an adventure. And again, it just made me realize that if you have faith in trying to do something different in having a whimsical adventure where it's like, well, what would happen if we tried to drive our own boat down the Mekong River? It ended up taking three weeks. We made it to the Cambodian border. Not only did we not have visas for Cambodia, but there's a giant waterfall that breaks the Mekong River between Laos and Cambodia. And it's like, I think we've done enough. We are alive. We have taken the boat for three weeks. There's nothing like this. Let's just sell this riverboat to somebody local and declare ourselves winners. And I think these adventures become an active part of your daily life. Just like that riverboat propeller is right in my office. And I can look at that and think, I sucked the marrow out of life to steal a line from Henry David Thoreau on that day, on that experience. It reminds me that if I'm at home or overseas, I can embrace not knowing. I can challenge myself a little bit and I can see what potential this day has be it jumping in a riverboat on the Mekong River or sitting still in a village square and just seeing what happens. When we think about what's important to us, adventure, exploration, seeing the world, but also perhaps home, friends, falling in love, putting down roots, it can feel like they're on opposite sides of a wobbly scale, fated forever to be imbalanced one way or the other. But really, they're just two sides of the same coin. And we can and should always seek to carry both with us all the time. Within the travel industry, the word escape has often been used to describe the potentials that travel has. Here's a great escape in the Caribbean, in South America, in Europe. We've been led to believe that travel is this escape from these habit-driven lives we have at home, when in fact travel can be an escape into a fuller appreciation of what life can be. Travel allows us to do what we haven't been doing at home. It can allow us to slow down and savor a day, to savor a meal. Seeing how people live on the other side of the world helps you refine what your idea of home is. That it's not about getting away from an undesirable place, but it's about coming back to a place you had sort of stopped to see and making it more desirable, being able to see this place in a new way. And so I think sometimes some of my favorite travel moments are not necessarily those cool bucket list items, nothing against bucket lists, but it's like, oftentimes it is those quotidian things. It's like going into a supermarket in Spain or in Vanuatu and realizing that the ingredients are a little bit different and the layout is a little bit different. And then just realizing, okay, this is really a lens as much as anything that's on my to-do list of things to experience in this place. It's these little details that are really putting me into a moment. I tell people that you can be as alive and focused when you're in a weird convenience store in Slovakia 
as much as when you're hiking through the forest in, in Slovakia. And so I think it's that shifting of context. It's really being attuned to things that you have stopped noticing at home because I think habits are born out of efficiency. They make our life easier at home. We can't celebrate every moment when we're at home, but we can get a perspective on them. And I just love that about being in new places. I love how, in a sense, it makes you a child again. You're not really sure what's going on. You're not really sure which words to use or where to go, but you're learning and you're open to it and you're really reconnecting with a childlike part of yourself, which you can keep alive in a certain way, even as you grow older, if you're willing to do so. And even though we go through our quotidian days at home in a way that we sometimes don't pay attention to it. I love the way that the travel is in conversation with the lives we live at home. And if we see travel just as an escape into the life we could be living, then maybe we should find ways to, to put travel in a more active conversation with the lives we live at home, even if it's not as exotic as sitting at a table at the other side of the world. It's the same sun, moon, and stars, but we're at home and it's good to be aware of the miracle that the moment is. Recently, my wife and I lost our water here in our house in Kansas. A pipe burst and it took a week to get fixed. To live without water for a week in my own home in Kansas was an interesting experience. I didn't enjoy it sometimes, but I had done that enough traveling overseas that it really made me feel so grateful and wondrous at the idea that clean water can be coming out of this tap in my home. And so I think it's not just relegated to these moments that blow your mind overseas. I think that travel can make you feel that sense of wonder in such a way that it reminds you to feel it back home. You might have had a moment when the sun came up in the Himalayas in a guest house with no running water. And that week that you have no running water at home sort of reminds you of that experience and makes you feel grateful for those times when you do have running water and how when you saw that sunrise in the Himalayas, you didn't need running water. You just needed to be reminded that life can be good. We don't dance for the flourish at the end of the song. We don't listen to a symphony for the timpani drum banging at the very end of the symphony. We dance to enjoy each step of the dance. We enjoy the symphony for each movement within the symphony. And life is about how we live each episode of it, knowing that it is fleeting and it will one day end. And so I think being able to fold in these travel stories to our lives as we move forward just allows us to create a rich story and it allows us to be thankful for the lives that we're living at home, which are often more filled with blessings than we would give ourselves credit for had we not been to the other side of the world and felt those blessings. This is my life, and there's so much potential ahead of me. And now I'm in my 50s, actually, but I still like that the P word, potential. I like the idea that even if you're not sure what's going to happen, you can feel the sense that anything is going to happen. And being open to that is such a gift of travel. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including how to listen to Aaron Miller's Armchair Traveler podcast can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. 